Linda's art and Linda's comments, um, but really I want to open it out to all of you now um, and spend you know, 15 or 20 minutes, really. And then if we have a little bit of stillness and meditation at the end, and I've got a final poem, I could sort of send you out. But um, obviously we've talked, we've had a chance to have some feedback and have it about individual poems. But I want to start this final session with uh, a much more um, wide-ranging question, which is, let's just take these three words, sort of been hovering in the air, poetry, meditation, and prayer. Just think about how we can bring those three things together, how they might enable or mutually inform or even indeed enfold. I hinted already a little bit about poetry and prayer in that many of these poems that I've read to you are in fact prayers. If you look at most of the I Am ones, I think if not all, are actually directly addressed to Jesus. Sometimes in awe and wonder saying, what? Oh, thank you. And sometimes saying, really? What am I supposed to do with that? Or sometimes cries of pain. So, so the poetry is quite straightforward in prayer. And it is possible, therefore, quite simply to read the poem as a prayer. However, I think personally that there's a much deeper way in which poetry can be read as prayer just as art can be seen as prayer, or music heard as prayer. I've already mentioned Seamus Heaney. Um, let me mention him again. There's a fabulous poem of his, um, Hallucination Island, in which he recalls a series of key events in his own life and draws out from them. One of the events he recalls in the sequence of poems, Station Island, is having been to confession. And uh, he remembers the priest behind the grill who's giving him, like, like after he's confessed, you know, you should have your penance, if you like, or, or, or your task, or your advice. So, uh, Heaney in the poem says, a voice that had spoken years ago from behind the grill spoke again about the need and chance to salvage everything to re-envisage the zenith and glimpsed jewels of any gift mistakenly abased. What came to nothing could always be replenished. Read poems as prayers, he said, and for your penance, translate me something by Juan de la Cruz. <laughs> Spanish. Translate me something by Juan de la Cruz. So in the context of the poem, he's confessing to a Spanish monk, and you know, like, okay, hey, I've got a poet on the other side of the... I'd like a translation of John of the Cross, please, you know, it's going to be... So, um, it's a beautiful thing he said, you know, you couldn't have a better account of the sacrament of reconciliation, could you, than the need and chance to salvage everything, to re-envisage. But actually, re-envisage the zenith and glimpse jewels of any gift mistakenly abased seems to me to be what poetry and art are all about that the gift that's mistakenly abased is the gift, what, what uh, the poet Larkin called the million-petaled flower of being here. Just being here at all is a gift. Then the world around us is a gift. The other people are gifts. We mistakenly abase all these gifts. Sometimes art gives us the chance to re-envisage 
as anything. And then beauty came to nothing could always be replenished. Read poems as prayers. So I take it that this, this priest speaking to Heaney was not saying read George Herbert's poem, Prayer, as a prayer, but read everything. Read your D.H. Lawrence poems, you know, read your James Joyce, you know, read agonizing and incomprehensible bits of T.S. Eliot as, 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 you know, read Samuel Beckett as prayer. I mean, actually, I think a lot of Samuel Beckett is prayer, but uh, it's a sort of cry of dereliction prayer, but it's prayer nevertheless. So I believe there's a sense in which poetry can be prayer simply because you read it in the, you know, sometimes I just try reading the poem to Jesus, somebody else's poem, as though he's in the, you know, he's in the room, addressing to Christ a poem which the poet didn't address to Christ because the poet technically didn't believe in Christ. But nevertheless, the poet was made by Christ and in Christ. And sometimes poems that were intended for one thing by the poet come home in the most amazing way when you read them as prayers. In my anthology, um, The Word in the Wilderness, um, for Lent, I've put in all kinds of poems that really the poet might have been a bit surprised. You know, I put... W.B. Yeats' Song of the Wandering Angus in there, you know, which is, you know, a forlorn love song voiced for a pagan god. But I, I read it, you know, in, about my longing for Christ. Even though in this case the Christ I long for is, 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 is the trout that became a glimmering girl, you know, so it's kind of, you know. Um, so, so I think you can do that. So there's a poem prayer thing. Where does the poem or prayer meditation thing come from? Well, you're the experts rather than me, but the one thing I suppose I would feel about poetry is that it it's invites a slow, mindful, particularly present kind of reading, a kind of Lectio Divina. It slows language down. And if Meditation is the opposite of rapid chatter to God. Then poetry is the opposite of skim reading. It's the opposite of scanning. So what the poem does with language in terms of deepening and centering and intensifying, surely meditation is doing with the kind of what start off as just vocal prayers, yeah? So they must be gravitating towards or else radiating from a similar sort of point of depth, I think. So that would be how I would begin to think about how poetry, prayer and meditation might come together. That's very different from practically saying how you might do it. So let me just throw that ball into your court. And you tell me how you would link, relate, either in themselves in your mind or practically in your practice those three things, poetry, prayer, and meditation, how do they work together? I'm unconscious of um, some of the sentences in a book I wrote, maybe nothing happened in my books. I know that book. Uh, and they talk about poetry as a contemplative and reflective space, a holding space, yeah. a space which contains that still contemplation of, of, of God, um, the steadiness, and, and that has resonance for me yeah. about poetry.
Well, there's some examples of that in the book of the particular kind of poetry that does that. Can you remember? Um, well, yes, actually. Um, there was one which I can't recite because I can't remember it all, but it was about a Muslim woman who pulled out the costume. It was about um, the encounter with Zen uh, in a Japanese garden. And there was one line, which I don't know, I think where um, the expected ordered stones, but a Catholic priest with tears in his eyes took him by the hand and showed him his beloved Zen with love. Yeah. Um, and the other one was just a simple poem um, by Nesbitt, which is a sort of almost a Quaker poem, which is a doer, which is God make the gentle um, where life is hard for living and where the world is harsh, God make me kind for loving. Yeah. And just just that gentle good gentle cadences. Yeah. Just the very thing just in the thing you've just quoted brings an element which surely poetry and meditation have in common, which is glad repetition deliberation. Um, poems have choruses, they have refrains, they have repeated lines. They return again and again to a phrase, and each time they return, it's deepened in some way. Um, and surely, if you're praying the Jesus Prayer, or if you're praying another of those very brief utterances or chanting them, there is that sense of recognizing that the words have more and more to give, rather than less and less to give, as you, as you take them. Um, I would say to myself that I could take a poem <coughs> to meditation that it would be let go at the point where I began to meditate mm. but it was there at the beginning and it's there at the end mm. but the bit in between God seems to do to us what poetry seems to do to language is it squeezes out all the rubbish yeah. and leaves this beautiful the real meaning of us and our lives but the rest it seems to be all rubbish is, is left behind mm. and it feels like that's what poetry yeah. To language that it's taking of the yeah. very best and presenting it. Mm. And that seems to be, I would say, the time of God's poem. That yeah. we are all God's poems. Certainly that's where yes. you are being uttered by God. I think it's yes. really important. And sometimes you have to let him speak you. Yes. Rather than, you know, forestalling him. Um, yeah. I'm glad you said that thing about you might leave the poem behind. You might use the poem to enter into the silence and meditation. And you might leave the poem behind. You might enter into the deepest. You might pick it up again. I think that's very important. And I think that leaving behind the poem is a compliment to the poem rather than ignoring the poem. The great American poet, Wendell Berry, poet still, I mean, I think Wendell Berry is one of the prophets of our age. But he has a wonderful poem called um, How to Be a Poet, brackets to remind yourself. And it's got, it starts, so we were talking about you, it begins with the words, make a place to sit down. Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> be quiet. 
quiet. And then it has this whole thing about you must depend on time, patience, discernment, more of these than you have. Yeah. And he goes, but at the end, he says this about writing a poem. He says, try to make a poem that does not obscure the silence from which it comes. Try to make a poem that does not obscure the silence from which it comes. So that presumes that the poem comes from silence. And that it will clarify the silence which follows it. And indeed, the lines that follow those lines in the poem, after he says, try to make a poem that does not obscure the silence from which it comes, he says, there are no unsacred places, only sacred places and desecrated places. And that sense that, you know, you're trying to sacralize again what may have been desecrated in language. But I've always stated that, try to make a poem that does not obscure the silence from which it comes. So I could well imagine that it would always be the test of a poem, that you could take it into silence that it could stay in the silence and that it would not obscure but would clarify the silence. And so in that sense itself agreed to be silent while you continued and then be ready for you when you yeah. wanted to pick it up. So that's very helpful. Yeah. And that makes a circular relationship yeah. between if, the writing of the absolutely. silence, the writing of the, yeah. of the silence and going into silence. Yeah. Which is equally important for yes. its own sake, the silence, as the poem is in words for its own sake. Yes, absolutely. So it is a circular thing. That Wendell Berry wrote a sequel, a sequence of poems, but they're now all being gathered together in one volume, called Sabbaths, which are basically poems he wrote on the Sabbath. He lives on a farm in Kentucky, he's you know, a small landholder, agrarian, you know, farmer. And he makes a poem, you know, each Sabbath. And they're very much poems of contemplation and rest. There's an absolutely wonderful one where he talks about go, getting up from the house and going into a grove of trees on his farm. And he says, once more I enter the standing Sabbath of the trees. And it's absolutely fantastic because standing, obviously it's literally the trees are standing and he's standing amidst the trees. But it is a standing Sabbath. That is to say, it's a perpetual Sabbath. It's a Sabbath that stands over or holds over throughout the week. That even though he himself and we ourselves fall out of or sit down from or abandon Sabbath. When we leave the Sabbath day. It is a kind of standing Sabbath in that God is in that rest. And we are invited into that rest. And in that rest, what God is doing is contemplating with delight and creation. The word of the Sabbath is, it is good, it is very good, you know. And in the same little sequence, he has a thing about going back into the same wood and the Sabbath trees and watching one yellow leaf. And as he looks at this leaf, he says, you know, in the standing Sabbath, I am taught again how little it takes to satisfy and delight the mind and bring it to rest, you know, the rest in that thing. So there's certainly some poetry that I think is particularly conducive to, to meditation and contemplation. I think there's a connection between moving from the head uh, to 
there is also, I think, and it's in this sense that uh, we're afraid of our own hearts, really. We, we're not quite sure that we'll trust what we find there. And, and we have to recognize, um, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be, says Jesus. But, you know, it's kind of what you're doing. I, I, uh, there's a very, very powerful late poem of Yeats called uh, The Circus Animal's Desertion, which is about Yeats having achieved everything, you know, and he's this 60-year-old smiling public man and he's got his poetry, and he just feels like it's just not doing anything for him, it just doesn't seem to mean anything. He, he needs to start again, he needs to, to know how he can do that. Uh, and then he, he says, I must lie down again where all ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. You know, I've got to begin there and let, let the angels of God ascend and descend from there. And sometimes we just don't go to our heart because we're afraid of what we'll find there. But you know, Jesus can deal with it. Somebody else to come back on this general thing about the nature of the, or the relationship between meditation, prayer, and poetry. They kind of move into and out of each other, don't they? Um, In my poem that I opened the whole thing with, or that um, Linda read, Singing Bowl, I was partly trying to get to that sense, as it were, of how one might, if you like, move from the head to the heart. And I had to start where I am, and here's where I am, and this is the things I'm doing. And then this deepening, this listening, this staying with the music, this slowing down. And then, I suppose it's almost the heart being, I mean, there's a paradox in this poem, which is about emptiness and fullness. So the poem has become an open singing bowl, whose chime is richness rising out of emptiness. That actually had a very specific moment for me. I had a singing bowl, and I used to use it for an aid to meditation, and I used to like it, and I used to just stay with and float on the chime of it, and love the way that harmony would come above it, and I found it really helpful and calming. Unfortunately, our singing bowl was kind of, we kept it um, near the front door, and um, people put things in it, you know, because it was there. So one time I was feeling completely frazzled, I just absolutely at my wit's end and I'd been working too hard and all that stuff. I was feeling, well, I just, I just need to stop everything. I need to contemplate. I need to just be still. I know I'll strike the singing bowl and I'll just think. So I struck the singing bowl without really looking at it. It went, you know, I was like, why is, why is that, what's wrong with the singing bowl? God, even my singing bowl didn't work today. And then of course I look and it's full of like car keys and house keys and, you know, um, notes and Stuff. So while I thought, ah, I know how to make my singing bowl chime, I must empty it. And <laughs> I'm just in the course of emptying the singing bowl, and I go, oh, 
this is why I'm such a mess, this is why I can't pray anymore, this is why I can't, you know, my singing bowl is just like too full. So this chime that's richness rising out of emptiness was actually a way sort of physically emptying the stuff out of our singing bowl in order to make it chime at all. So then sometimes I'm aware of such little brain that God has to be blindingly obvious to me before I finally get it. Uh, but then the poem ended by saying, when the heart is full of quietness, begin the song exactly where you are. So there's a kind of paradox that it is emptied in order to be filled with something. Which is part of what Jesus is saying about the man who made his house tidy and swept and clean. And, you know, and then the seven devil came in and said, be um, So you emptied and you filled and you had to have that sense of it. So while I was doing this, another phrase of another poet came to me. Um, and that's become a real phrase for me. And funnily enough, it's a poem. It's by the Welsh poet Gwyneth Lewis. She wrote a wonderful poem called Homecoming, which in my view is entirely a poem about meditation. Indeed, it is a poem about meditation. She was brought up as a Methodist and sort of was quite active in that thought faith and then kind of, you know, encountered a really severe depression and various other difficulties and abandoned her faith and went off and did other things. And eventually, almost as a survival to deal with real stress, almost as a technique, but without getting further into it, she, be, she became interested in meditation and particularly in Buddhism. So she embraced a lot of Buddhism. And then gradually, through that practice of Buddhism, she came to be able to rediscover her Christian faith. She came back to it. She came to it and she, was, she thought, oh, you know, I've got to think about how to, how to pick this up again without it being the thing, without it being all the issues I had to deal with and discard in my childhood, but still being what it is. And I knew, had known her for a while, and so we had some correspondence about this and what to do. And um, she was coming back from America. She was going back to Wales to live. And I thought, Ah, I know a bloke who's just become Archbishop of Wales who knows a bit of Welsh poetry. So I wrote, I wrote to Rowan Williams and said, look, there's a really first-class poet who's kind of on the cusp of coming back to these things. You ought to get in touch with her. And he did, indeed. And he, she was confirmed in Mammoth Cathedral. But in this poem, Homecoming, which is a poem about meditation, entirely about meditation, but nevertheless about coming home to... to she, she has this one phrase, which I love, and it's just this. It's a list of all the things that are meditation. And one of the other words in the list is this. Days emptied to their brim. Mm -hmm. I just thought, yes, you know. <coughs> if you like the obvious cliche, filled to the brim and or empty, you know, but emptied to their brim, to be emptied to the brim so that you're brim full of something because you've allowed to that emptiness. Seem to me to be, and the, whatever else is going on in meditation, or in, it seems to me that there's a certain, like you said, the squeezing out of the other stuff, the empty, but that you can be emptied to the brim. And I sometimes like think I just need to get that in my diary. I just need to have one or two days that are emptied to the brim. You know, not and then, and then they have to be completely empty. They can't have anything in them at all. You know, you say, yes, 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 why don't you do it? Yeah, you know, yeah, so that, that, that's, that's a sort of, yeah. Days emptied to their brain. Maybe as time is going by, which we've got here, but so we're going to have a, um, should we, should we, um, I'd like to send you out with a, one last sonnet, which is on here. But maybe we could just be, 
be stable simply for a couple of minutes. Um, and then I will try to read you a poem which I hope will not obscure the silence from which it comes. Let's just, um, shall I strike the singing bowl and we'll just keep still for a couple of minutes and then I'll strike it again and read that poem. I will be with you. Matthew 28 and verse 20. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Your final words fulfill your ancient name, a promise hidden in Emmanuel, a promise that can never fade or fail. I will be with you till the end of time. I will be with you when you scale the height and with you when you fall to earth again. With you when you flourish in the light and with you through the shadow and the pain. Our God with us, you leave and yet remain 
risen and hidden with us everywhere, hidden and, and flowing in the wine we share, broken and hidden in the growing grain. Be with us till we know we are forgiven. Be with us here till we're with you in heaven. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you.